0: Uh, Some of you might be very happy this morning, and some of you might be very disappointed this morning uh, because things might not have turned out the way that you wanted them to this week. Some of you are sad, and that's understandable, but regardless of which side you're on, I think we all have to accept the fact That Alabama is going to remain undefeated and going to go to the championship and going to win. All right, roll tide, roll tide. (laughs) So a little humor to start the day, of course. Friday was Veterans Day. I know you thought, wow, pastor's really deep, spiritual, political this morning. Well, Anyway, hey, listen, I told you at the beginning of last week, we were going to make it through and we'd see each other again on Sunday, right? No matter what happened. But anyway, speaking of the week, Friday was Veterans Day. How many of you know a veteran or have someone who served in the military in your home? How many veterans in the house this morning? Several. Okay, great. Um, So I, for one, am incredibly thankful, and I want to take a moment at the start of our service because we didn't do it preemptively um, last Sunday, but I want to take just a moment and tell you how thankful that we are to these individuals who are here, but not only those. I have family. You might have family who've served as well, who've chosen to serve, and I think that one of the highest callings in life is the ability for you to give it all, and be willing to sacrifice for the health, the life, and the freedom of someone else. And so uh, we have the deepest respect and admonition or admiration, I should say, uh, for those who have served. Um, They sacrifice the things that we enjoy in order to go and to serve and to protect our freedoms. They sacrifice holidays, maybe birthdays, maybe big events in the lives of their family and friends and those that they love in order to be here. And I think that they're extraordinary and exceptional people. Uh, My brother served, my grandfather served, um, and so I believe with all of my heart that they deserve honor. So let's give them a round of applause this morning. Thank you for your service in the armed forces. That's good. We love you, and we're glad that you did that, and we're glad that you made it today to be here with us. Um, So we're in a new series that we started last week called The Screwtape Letters. If you're joining us for the first Sunday in this series, it seems like a strange title, but it's from a book uh, written by C.S. Lewis back in 1942, and it's a Christian apologetic. It helps us understand, at least it's it's a novel apologetic, which is one of a kind that kind of helps us have some insight into the dark realm. So you say, wow, pastor, you're preaching about the devil. Yes, we're doing a whole series so that we can understand what the enemy is, who he is, what he does, what his strategy is, and so that we can live in victory. We said last week that we talked about the necessity of recon or reconnaissance. Knowing the enemy and how he behaves is of the utmost importance when we talk about winning a victory on a battlefield. This is so true. We said last week, and it's been said before, that force alone cannot win the day. It can't win the fight. You can go to the gym, you can drink as much protein as Pastor Cameron does, and you can show up to a fight. And when you show up, if you don't have some forethought and foreknowledge of who the enemy is and how he or she's behaved before and what's going on, then you'll be lesser able To walk in victory. And so today we're going to do a little bit more recon. And um, we talked about his origin last week. If you missed that message, I don't say this to pat myself on the back or to sound like a TV preacher. I really say this because I think it was an important message and I think I did an okay job at it. So I really encourage you, listen to our podcast. The message from last week really sets the tone for this whole series. And I think it'll be enlightening to some people when we talk about the origin. So this week we're going to attack the idea of his character. We're gonna look at the character of the enemy and how he's behaved in the past. Here are some of the names that are used throughout scripture. I want you to listen to these. Some of you would know these names and some of, you, some of them might sound um, unfamiliar. Lucifer, Satan, devil, serpent, dragon, Beelzebub, Belial, tempter, the wicked or evil or lawless one, the prince of this world, The prince of the power of the air, God of this world, God of this age, deceiver, accuser, like an angel of light, murderer, father of lies, and destroyer. Now, if you think about those titles that are given to him throughout scripture, you begin to see how he's behaved. There are active words there. He is a liar, but not only such, he is also the father of all lies. He's a destroyer. It's always been his nature to destroy the work of God. He is a murderer. It says that he's murdered from the beginning and that that was what incited Cain's heart in order to kill his own brother Abel. So we've got to understand who he is and what he does so that we We can have victory here and now. Today we're going to look and examine three names for the enemy. The first one that we'll look at today is he's a deceiver. Go with me to Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 5. Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 5. To deceive someone means to cause them to believe something that is not true, typically in order to gain an advantage over them. That's what the, the idea behind deception is. And the enemy of God has been deceiving people from the very beginning. This is the first mention, we're going to read it right now, of evil in human history. Listen closely. It says this in the New King James Version. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So I don't know what you remember from a Sunday school lesson, and I don't know what your thoughts may be about this moment in human history. We're told that a serpent spoke, which seems very odd. I don't know. I mean, people talk about, you know, animals and having special connection with them, but I've never heard them enunciate words, okay? There are some parrots they can, you know, mimic and that kind of thing. But we're talking about a snake who shows up by a tree and starts having a conversation with a woman about God, her creator. So you've got to have this in your head. But at the end of that passage of Scripture When we read here in verse 14 and 15, if you'll go with me, I want you to take note of something important. It says there in chapter 3, verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. And more than every other beast of the field, on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's a real serpent in the garden and it received a real physical curse to crawl on its belly and eat dust for the rest of its life. If you're like me, your imagination may wonder. Was it not slithering on the ground before then? Was it walking on its tail? Was it standing up? You may imagine that. But here it says, where God says, I'm going to curse you to slither on the ground and eat dust all the days of your life. But verse 15, most of your Bible translations would say, between your seed and her seed with a capital S, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In this moment that sin occurs, redemption is being revealed. On the third chapter of human history, in the first few moments of our existence, God is showing us already with a capital S, someday redemption will come and it'll come through this woman, through these people. So remember, we've got to remember that Satan is a spiritual being. He and his demons have the ability to enter into people and to influence people and even animals. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure every cat I've ever met is demon-possessed, okay? I'm just going to throw that out there. It was free. I'm just saying, I think yes, okay? That might not be in the Bible, but it's hard to dispute the facts, okay? Moving on. Although we may not recognize it ourselves, God sees when Satan is influencing someone and will often speak directly both to the person and to the one influencing that person. Now some of you, I could sense it in the room today, some of you when I said not only influence but can possess people, you immediately kind of shudder at that and you're like, oh, I don't know that doesn't really make sense. It's all throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the examples that we have and we'll talk about a few of those today but it's important for us to know this. Luke chapter 22 verse 3, you don't have to go there but this is the verse where Judas Um, is, is entered in, the Bible says, by Satan himself in order to go and betray Christ. I don't think if I was Satan that I would trust that with any of my minions to go and do that job because that's the one job I know I've got to be in charge of. So the Bible actually says in chapter 22, verse 3 of Luke, that Judas was entered into by Satan. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, Peter was influenced by Satan. Listen, if you've ever heard this story before, what does Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan. But he's looking in the face of Peter. So Peter wasn't a bad guy, and he wasn't being Satan in that moment. Satan didn't take on the form of Peter and trick Jesus. In that moment, Satan was the influence over Peter, and Jesus is looking at this man, and he's saying to him, you get behind me, the spirit that's behind him, the thing that's influencing him. In Mark chapter 5, demons enter into a herd of pigs, and the pigs commit suicide. There are allegiance, welcome Brighton. Everybody say, good morning, Brighton. All right, so Brighton's not feeling very well, and she's in church today, the littlest person in here. We're not going to explain that word suicide this morning, but the pigs jumped off the cliff, right? And so the demons were there, and they entered into the pigs. They only entered into them with the permission of Jesus Christ. It's really important that you understand it's not equally good and equally bad. It's not God as represented in the yin-yang and evil as an equal opportunity in there. It's not that at all. So, although we see these things, we also hear of other places in Scripture. and You may want to jot these down. They're really interesting to read. Ezekiel chapter 27 and 28. God is speaking a word to the king of Tyre. T-Y-R-E. And as he's speaking, he speaks to him directly, and then he gives a word to the one who's influencing him. And he he announces that in the passage. The same thing happens in Isaiah chapter 14. People have been confused, and today I'm giving you a little bit of lesson in theology. Isaiah chapter 14 very much deals with a physical human man who lived and walked on the earth, but who was influenced by Satan himself. And so you can hear both of those influences, the human as well as the, the satanic that are there. And you can see what God says to those individuals. All of these are examples of influence and control. And at least two of these, or three of these most likely, are examples of possession. So in Genesis chapter 3, when we're looking at that passage of scripture and we're looking at who the serpent is in the story, God is speaking to the serpent that is physical as well as to Satan who is of the spiritual realm influencing that animal, that beast, the serpent. So the serpent receives a curse if you paid attention and so does Satan, the deceiver. Let me ask you this question this morning. How much fault or how much blame can we lay at the feet of Adam and Eve? How could they have safeguarded themselves from the deception of the serpent influenced by Satan in that moment? Speaking and saying, God didn't really mean that, did he? and inciting that question and that curiosity inside of them. What kind of safeguard could they have had to prevent deception? And better yet, what kind of safeguard can we have? Back then, they didn't have the whole of Scripture to consult. They couldn't see, like Hebrews says, the stories that are given to us and those lives that were lived were lived on purpose for our instruction, our reproof, our correction, for the example to be made to us. They didn't have anybody else but them and God. They didn't have any of their own experience to glean from. So what's the one thing that they did have to safeguard themselves? They had God's voice and his instructions. It's important that you understand if you are to be safeguarding your own life against the deception of the enemy because he's always been a deceiver. He seeks to deceive now. He's deceived many people in this world, even in these days. And we can see testimony of that happening even in the life of Paul when he's riding to the church and he's saying, there are people in the church who have even gone astray because they've accepted this delusion or this deception. But here's the thing, if we are going to safeguard ourselves against that, we have got to have his word with us. The Bible says that he walked with them and he talked with them and that they knew him and his instructions, but in this moment, they chose not to trust him. I want to ask the question, was there another example in scripture before those three chapters that that God said, I'm setting the appointment with you today, but didn't show up? Did he give them a reason to not trust him? Did they ask for something that they truly, absolutely needed and having no other ability to seek it anywhere else but him, say, Father, can you give me this need? And he refused it and said, nope, not going to give it to you. They didn't have any bad experience to go on, yet the enemy was able to deceive them. They did not trust in the voice of God and in his instructions. He had not given them any reason to lack trust. He had not not broken a promise to them. And I thank God he has never broken a promise and never will a promise that he makes. So my point is the only safeguard against deception is the word of God. That's why we are excited and I would say I'm proud to agree with us as a church that we preach the full gospel. You can go to many churches and not hear anything about the Holy Spirit. You can go to many churches and not hear anything about the enemy who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. But we preach the whole counsel of God and the whole counsel of Scripture. That prevents us from walking in delusion and deception that the enemy tries to put out there. In every letter that Paul writes to a church, it seems he's trying to... Well, the ability of someone who's gotten themselves wedged into the church, who started leading people astray in a different direction. And Paul's writing correctively to each one of those churches. No, I know they came in and said this, but you've got to go back to the cross and the crucifixion. It's not the works that you do. It's God's work that he's done. I'm preaching this morning. I hope you say amen at some point. We'll get through here quick. But I'm telling you the only safeguard to deception And it even happens in the church, is the word of God. Listen to what Psalm 119, verse 9 through 11 says. The psalmist writing, he says, This, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I've sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 11, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 15, it says this, I will meditate on your precepts, contemplate your ways. I'll delight myself in your statutes and I will not forget your word. This is so important. This is why you may have heard me say two weeks ago and I was so serious and I'll repeat the same challenge today. If you do not choose to read the Word of God at some point in the next hundred so hours that you have this week, there is no reason for you to come back here next Sunday. We have got to be people of the Word. This isn't your only meal. This isn't my job to give you one big feast. You are to be feasting on the Word of God yourself on a daily basis. That's the only way to prevent deception. So he's a deceiver. The second thing is this, and I've only got three. The second thing is, he is a tempter. How many of you have ever been tempted? Please, 100%. If you're alive, raise your hand. Temptation. What is temptation? Temptation is any enticement that causes us to want to forego or to go against God's will. So we look at God's word and see what God's will is. God's will is that we shouldn't kill, that we shouldn't destroy, that we shouldn't lie, that we shouldn't cheat. And so we look at these things, these precepts, these statutes of God's where we see in Psalm 119, he says, I will not forget. And we realize that's a safeguard also in temptation. That is exactly what Satan was attempting to do when he was tempting Jesus and he continually tries to do the same thing with us. Make us walk in a way that's contrary to God's will. Every time that we're enticed to disobey God with our thoughts, with our words, with our actions, we've got a choice to make in that moment. Will we submit to the temptation or will we resist the temptation? We want to choose to walk faithfully with God. Jesus demonstrated this victory perfectly. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus, even though the Son of God was a spiritual being, he inhabited a body of flesh and bones just like you and I. He had been tempted and he had been tried. And it's important if we look at Matthew chapter 4, we see how he became victorious and how he lived in this moment of temptation. Look at Matthew chapter 4. It says this in verse 1 through 4. Jesus was led up, listen, by the Spirit. Is talking about the Holy Spirit leading him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Verse 2, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. You think you'd be hungry? 40 days and 40 nights. This is the moment the tempter comes in verse three. It says, now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. You got some power. I heard you got some power. You can go ahead and make this happen if you want to. You've done some crazy things in the wilderness. You've used other people to bring water out of rocks and you've rained down birds and bread on the people of Israel. You can surely do this. So he's he's wedging himself in there and tempting Jesus. But verse four says this, but he, being Jesus, answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So what was Jesus' weapon in this moment? In this moment of the, the, the most pivotal moment of his life, you could say he was at his physically weakest At his mentally weakest, maybe even in the spiritual place of, oh my goodness, is this ever going to end? And it's in that moment that the enemy came in to tempt. I want you to hear today, he's doing the same thing with you. How many of you have been stressed out? How many of you have been tired and exhausted? How many of you don't know anything else besides the things I just said? You live in that zone. It's a dangerous place. That's why I love what Eric and the team did this morning, that call to worship. Come and drink from the Holy Spirit, from God himself. He wants to give you a refreshing in these times when we come together. That's why I encourage you to read the word of God and to worship him on a daily basis and to pray daily because he wants to be present in your life. It's in this moment, Jesus, of course, had God's presence with him. The spirit had led him into the wilderness and here he's being tempted, but his response is incredible. He says these three words that are damning to the enemy. He says this, it is written, He used the word of God as his weapon, even in this moment. I want you to understand something clearly today. God tests people. How many of you have ever been tested by God? You can say, I know it was a test from God. I know it was too for me. And we said already that we owned up to the fact that 100% of us in this room have been tempted by the enemy. But God tests people so that they can learn things about him, so that they can learn things about themselves and about how much they need him. Satan always tempts people in order for the purpose and the pure fact of destroying them and getting his hooks inside of them. We talked about it last week. Don't give the enemy a foothold. Don't give him, don't crack the door open even a tad. When you hear that knock and you know it's not God, don't open the door. Stay in the safety of God's presence. So we've got to understand his strategy is to constantly entice us to sin. And he wants to incite us to sin as well. He wants to encourage you to have that argument with your spouse, to be angry. You might think this, how many of you thought of a sin this morning while well, I'm talking, right? Come on. We've been tempted to sin. We said that, but it may not be the grotesque of things that we might think of. It's some of the simplest things that he wants to drive a wedge and get us in off track of where God wants us to be. Jesus was experiencing these moments of absolute exhaustion He was at the weakest of his physical life outside of the crucifixion. And this is the moment the enemy came in. We must make sure to guard against those moments of weakness and trust the Lord. And also, like Jesus, use God's word to be our safeguard in these moments of temptation. Listen to this. I want to tell you, I'm giving you a little lesson this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you've got a minute, go there. I want you to see something important. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says this. No temptation has overtaken you except such is common to man. Why am I being tempted like this? Nobody else is tempted like this. Yeah, everybody gets tempted in some way, shape, or form. It says no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. I want to help you this morning. Some of you have believed a lie all your life. You've heard somebody spout something that is absolutely untrue. I'm going to debunk it right now. The truth of the word of God very clearly there says that he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. Yet many people have lied and said these words. God will not give you more than you can handle. That is a lie. It's nowhere in the word of God. You just ask the guys who are thrown into the fire if they were given something a little bit more than they could handle. You just ask the mother of Moses who was given something more than she could handle and had to hide her baby. You just ask the people like Joseph who had to rise in a foreign kingdom to a place of authority, but he faced much more than he could handle. God will give you more than you can handle. And you know why? Because he loves you. Because he wants you to trust him. He wants you to depend on him. He wants you to seek him, and he wants you to come to him because you need him and because you love him. So I want you to make sure you understand that verse there does not say God will not give you more than you can handle. I believe with all of my heart in my little life, God gave me more than I could handle at points in my life. But he's been faithful. I love that passage. It says, but God is faithful faithful. Amen? Amen? So my point is this, the word of God is our safeguard against temptation, not a purely religious duty of reading the word, although any amount of reading will be good. Okay, just read a verse this week and you can come back to church, okay? Just one verse in your Bible. And it's digital. It's in your hand. You, there's no excuse. People in other countries that are serving around the world, they have excuses. There are underground churches. There are places that we know of that there are no Bibles allowed. But we have access to every translation, every ability to look into God's Word. We even have Google. <laughs> Don't trust Google, Okay. Keep searching the word of God. But don't let it just be a purely religious duty of reading the word. You've got to have a deeper understanding that the God who wrote these words can be trusted. This is where Adam and Eve were at. They just had this one encounter with the enemy who was deceiving and tempting them. And in this moment, they had forwent or foregone all of the words that God has spoken the days before. The Bible says that God came down into the garden in the cool of the day because he didn't like Mississippi weather. Okay, He came down in the cool of the day when the humidity broke and he walked with them and talked with them. They had trusted him. So why in this moment did they choose not to trust? Because they had a choice. And we all have a choice. So please don't read the word of God just out of pure duty or religious capacity. But trust the words and trust the one who wrote the words. If you have questions about the validity of the word of God or the inerrancy of scripture and how true it is and how it came to be and what the canon of scripture looks like, I'd, be, I'd love to help answer any of those questions and lead you through that. But we've got to trust him and his word because it brings light and life and the enemy we can see only ever deals in darkness and in death. He's in direct opposition to God and the work of God. Is this good this morning? Are you getting something out of this? Lastly, the third thing is this. So not only a deceiver, not only that which is a tempter with a capital T, he's the guy who trained all his military in how to do this. We talk about the screw tape letters. I would encourage you to get it on Kindle or get a a paperback version and read through it. All of it is their attempt, these two demons, their attempt to tempt this guy to go in the wrong direction way and make the wrong choice. And it's not always blatant and obvious. It's little things here and there. Lastly, he's this. He is an accuser. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been accused of something? (laughs) Have you ever been accused of something and it be true? Okay. Have you ever been falsely accused? Right? (laughs) <laughs> there, there are some elbows. Let's keep down on the elbows to the spouses and that kind of thing. We've been falsely accused before. We've also been accused and it's been very true. We deal with that with our children. One of them happens to be in this room this morning. One will accuse the other and the other will try to combat that. And the court of Dexter and Amy and they try to come before the judges and try to give their case. And she did this to me. No, he, what? And it just goes on and on and on. The enemy is the accuser. And I want to say even more clearly, the word of God says, and all you ladies listen closely, it says in the word of God that he's the accuser of the brethren. And that's the old translation. It would be the brethren and the sisteren. Is that a word? The brothers and the sisters of the king of all eternity, of God himself. He's the accuser of the saint and the believer. To accuse means to charge with a fault and to blame. There have been many accusations that have been hurled in the media lately. Anybody? Yes? Lots of accusations have been made. This is the constant action of the enemy of God and of his people. We said last week, and I got some good amens because people are like, wow, you're preaching. That's good. The devil isn't out to get you because he probably doesn't care about you because you're not important enough for him to care about. But he does have an army who's always seeking to try to get you off your game. But he's one guy. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He doesn't have the powers of deity. He's got one ability, and that is to be in one place at one time. The Bible tells us that he's actually in the presence of God. You say, Pastor, are you sure about that? Revelation chapter 12, listen to what it says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. I love Revelation, and I think this next year we'll do a series on the end time and we'll scare all the kids. But we're (laughs) going to, I love Revelation because it's important for us to learn. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 and 11, it says this, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now, salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. Verse 11 gives hope. It says this And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death or to the death. So he's not satisfied with merely directing his actions and those of his army against the saints personally. But he's at the the place of being in the presence of God. He's been banished from the throne room where God sits, but he is there and he is making accusations day and night. Have you seen what Gary did? (laughs) Have, Have you guys checked out Gary recently because he did something the other day he shouldn't have done? And this is what... He's accusing those who are the saints. Thank you, Gary, for letting me use you as an illustration. It's a prime example, though, can be found in Job chapter 1. I'm closing with this passage of Scripture and like six more. Job chapter 1 verse 9 says this. If you remember the the situation in Job, it says this. So Satan, verse 9, said, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan's in God's presence at this moment. Verse 10, have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, listen, he knows God's power. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Job is being accused in the presence of God. And God actually has kind of encouraged the conversation. He says, Satan, where you been? And Satan says, I've been going back and forth across the earth. I've been roaming around. And God says, well, and you're roaming in all of your travels. Have you checked out my buddy Job? He's incredible. He's righteous. He's a worthy servant of mine. And Satan retorts in that moment and says, yeah, but I think if you didn't let him have so much in his bank account, you might you might see him curse you to, his, to your face. I think if you remove that protection and all those blessings, you might see him respond a little differently. So listen to what, what happens in verse 12. So the Lord says to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So what are the safeguards that we have against the strategy of our enemy who seeks to accuse us in the very presence of God? Verse 11 of chapter 12 in Revelation just gave us those three things. And it's so powerful if we'll accept it at face value and let it sink deep into our hearts. It says, and they overcame him. When we talk about military and we've, talked, we've honored our veterans today in some small way, we've given them a round of applause. It's, it's the absolute least we can do, okay? Buy them lunch, encourage them, thank them for their service. We've got to understand in military terms, if we're doing recon on the enemy and seeing his strategy, then we've got to understand how he works and how we can defeat him. When anyone does recon, they go in and they look for the weakness of the enemy. Well, if you can go on that bridge, I'm sure we can get them all. We talked about the six day war last week and we talked about them knowing the, the Israel, Israelites, the Jewish people knew what time these guys went to breakfast and they bombed all their planes and they had a hand up and the war only lasted six days because of that, because they saw where the weakness was. So I hope you're getting that this morning. Verse 11 of chapter 12 in Revelation says, they overcame him. They were victorious over him, not because of what they did at first. Listen to me. It says, by the blood of the Lamb. This is the sacrifice of Christ's life on the cross and his not only his death but his resurrection. Amen? And it says, secondarily, by the word of their testimony. This is really important. The word of their testimony, the words that come out of our mouth regarding what Christ has done and that he's given us victory over sin, over temptation, that he's paid the price. He gives us grace. Here it says, and they considered the cost and were willing to even give their lives. We talked about veterans. All of you can be spiritual veterans this morning. We've got to be willing, like the physical veterans in this room, were willing to risk their life. They risked their life, their liberty, and their pursuit of happiness in order to allow me to pursue life and liberty and my pursuit of happiness. We've got to see this for what it is. They considered the cost and they were still willing to give their lives. This word in Revelation chapter 12 right here is saying that they overcame him first by nothing they could do of their own. It was of God's work in and of himself, not themselves. Then it was the word of their testimony. And then they did not love their life to the death. Here's the amazing truth. Even though we have an accuser who stands day and night to accuse you, We also have an advocate and an intercessor, the Bible says, who is God himself, Jesus Christ, before the Father in heaven. Imagine this, the the, the room where God is in heaven. Imagine the enemy on one side saying, have you seen Suzanne? Have you seen Mark? Have you seen Gary? And on the other side of the courtroom there is one who is interceding on our behalf, saying, but I paid. My blood was enough. I paid the price for them. There's an ongoing argument in a courtroom in heaven. But the advocate and the intercessor before the Father, listen to what happens in Romans chapter 8 verse 34. It says this, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even now at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. (laughs) How many of you have ever interceded on someone's behalf? You stopped to fight. (laughs) You stopped to quarrel. You said, hey, guys, wait, let's come to terms here. You Might have said it to your kids. Wait a second. Take a chill pill. Let's relax. He's interceding on our behalf. God has every right to judge you. Yet he sees the sacrifice of Christ himself and chooses that to be a a very big word, propitiation for our sins, the purchase of our sins and every punishment we would ever have. His son has done that work for us. He's interceding for us. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25 says this, "'Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost "'those who come to God through him, "'since he always lives to make intercession for them.'" Talking about Jesus. And in 1 John chapter two, verse one and two, it says this, "'My little children, these things I write to you "'so that you may not sin. "'I say that to you this morning.'" as your pastor, and as someone who studies the word of God in order to divulge it and give it to you, I say and I echo the same thing. The reason why I preach is so that you would not sin, so that you would understand what it means to study the word of God and resist the enemy and l- allow him to flee from you. He says those words in 1 John 2, and he says this, and if anyone sins, if you have messed up, have you? I have. I have. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. None of us are righteous, no, not one, but Christ himself alone is righteous. And it says there, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only. We're not special in and of ourselves. He didn't just do it for you just by yourself. He did it for everyone For the whole world. So he's a deceiver, he's a tempter, and he's an accuser. I want you to stand with me today. The word of God says that we are to resist the enemy, resist the devil, and he will flee. All you got to do is resist. And we said that practice doesn't make perfect, it makes permanent. So you've got to keep resisting the enemy because he's going to keep accusing and he's going to keep tempting and he's going to keep coming, but we've got to continue to resist him. Listen to this. It's an excerpt from the Screwtape Letters, the 23rd letter that's written between the uncle named Screwtape and his nephew, the apprentice named Wormwood. It fits into the days and times that we're living. It says this, My dear Wormwood, about the general connection between Christianity and politics, our position is more delicate. Certainly, we don't want men to allow their Christianity to flow over into their political life, for the establishment of anything like a really just society would be a major disaster. Okay, These are the demons talking. On the other hand, we do want, and we want very much, to make men treat Christianity as a means, preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement, but failing that as a means to anything, even to social justice. The thing to do is to get a man at first to value social justice as a thing which the enemy demands and then work him onto the stage at which he values Christianity because of what it can produce and that it would produce social justice. For the enemy will not be used as a convenience. The enemy who's writing this is a demon saying, God does not and he absolutely resists being used in your life and in mine as a mere convenience or a means to an end. I am not selling fire insurance. I'm telling you there's a better way to live this life now and to live this life later in eternity. And it's all because of what Christ has done for you and I. It doesn't matter what sin you've committed. It doesn't matter what good deed you've done. Christ still died for your sins and for mine. And he really is the only thing that we need in order to have access to heaven. It's his death and not just his death because if it was death alone, it would have seemed like a defeat. But it's more than that. It's the resurrection. He is called the resurrection and the life. And he offers that life to you and to I. I want you to close your eyes with me this morning.